Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. And today I've persuaded our animal, vegetable, mineral colleague to come out and join me for a conversation on conservation. So a big welcome to Jim. Hello, Jim. Hello, Amanda. It's uh, great to be here. Thanks for letting me out. (laughs) And I'm really pleased that you're joining me because as you're our resident Planet Pod bird expert, it's particularly appropriate as we welcome our very special guest, Sasha Dench. Sasha is not only a leader in the conservation movement, but has for many years now been giving us quite literally a bird's eye view of the extraordinary journeys of migratory birds from swans to ospreys. She's ambassador for the UN's Convention on Migratory Species and in 2019 set up Conservation Without Borders, which connects individuals, communities, businesses and government with frontline conservation and climate action. Sasha, welcome back to Planet Pod and thank you so much for joining us. No. Nice to be back. I know lots of our listeners will know about your adventures with swans and your work for the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, but they may not be quite so familiar with Conservation Without Borders. So could you maybe start by telling us a little bit about the charity and why you set it up? Uh, Well, I guess it was on the back of the success of the Flight of the Swans expedition, the fact that by flying with birds, we managed to bring lots more people into a conversation about conservation get a lot more people engaged uh, in trying to not only map out the problems, there were like different issues in different countries, the swans were declining faster than the, the total of all the threats that were known about. So there was some information missing that we needed to get. The swans go to very remote areas. So perhaps there were things happening in remote places that uh, we needed to know about. But we also had to uh, bring a load of people from industry, from groups like hunting, et cetera, in to try and help them or get them excited about helping us to solve the problems rather than presenting them as being um, the bad guys from the outset. And on the back of managing to shift a system there to try and get change. So the swan numbers since the expedition for the first time in 30 years stopped declining, in fact, showed a slight increase again. And we're not saying that actually just my flying with the birds uh, achieved that. But what it did was rally a load of supporters uh, and a load of new actors in to try and help us to to shift the system. So on the back of that um, expedition and a lot of media coverage, I was made ambassador for migratory species and had various rooms of scientists and conservationists saying, we need more of what you do. It's obviously a missing piece um, in the puzzle. And so, yeah, on the back of that, I set up Conservation Without Borders, not only because it's an interest, it's a great way of rallying people around trying to save a migratory species, but the aerial view and the bird's eye view on all of the problems that that we face um, is a really interesting one and one that, A, gets people talking, um, but also taking a slice of the planet like um, a migratory route which connects the cold Arctic with the um, warmer equatorial regions um, is a really useful scale to look at some of the big problems we face. So if we're being really honest, the challenge that migratory birds face are the same ones we're all facing. They are the big issues. It's um, loss of habitat. It's the destruction of biodiversity. It's a rapidly changing climate, making the environmental conditions much more difficult for them. It's vast amounts of uh, plastic waste and debris. They are the same sorts of issues, but where we manage to look at it at a scale that 
um, is manageable for people and where it feels small enough and close enough to different communities, they feel like they could have an impact. Um, so that's, but that's broadly where the idea came from. It's incredibly clever of you, really, isn't it? Because what you've done is you've taken something that, that people can relate to, that feels safe, like a bird, that people feel quite affectionate towards, or at least have, have, have you know, because when we talk about um, environmental sustainable issues on the podcast, lots and lots of people want us to talk about nature and biodiversity and species and animals and birds, because we can connect with them. You've taken those and you've used them to unlock a much, much bigger conversation to address a much more difficult problem. But as a kind of, as a, a symbol, as a signifier of what's going on, it's a, it's a really, a really smart move. And ho- hopefully through the format of an adventure, people can, in bite-sized chunks, slowly piece together, just as we do on an expedition, the different parts of a puzzle and how they're connected and also how we are connected potentially in the kind of, in the UK or in, in Europe with some of the challenges that are happening in, in West Africa. If you try to bombard somebody with all those facts um, in one hit or you sit down and you try to absorb it in a document, it wouldn't work. But if you're following a, a three or four month expedition where you're learning bits and pieces as we do, um, it certainly works for some people. And Sasha, your your most recent uh, aerial view you've taken, I guess, is with the flight of the Osprey, isn't it? And, and Yeah. I mean, that... Uh, how did that go? Just tell us about that. And also, why the osprey? I mean, you, you first of all, you were a swan. Now you're an osprey. Mm-hmm. Why the osprey? Uh, why the osprey? So we wanted to continue the, the the route. So the swans take use a section of the, the flyway, which goes from the, the Russian Arctic down towards the UK and Europe, wanted uh, to continue that down uh, into Africa. And yeah, we looked at various different species and the, to be honest, it was a um, meeting with Roy Dennis at the Scottish Ornithological Conference. Uh, in fact, there was someone else there who tried to convince me to follow honey buzzards um, and a couple of other species. And then, yeah, Roy Dennis hurling me around the dance floor at a Cayley at that conference um, said, you know, why don't you, why don't you do the same thing for ospreys you did for swans? And whilst my initial reaction was, well, the ospreys is kind of making a comeback. They don't need the kind of urgent help the way that the swans did. What I really came to love about the ospreys was actually just how much information we, we had from existing data, um, but also the fact that we need positive conservation stories. And I like the fact that the osprey's history is one that's quite, um, I mean, it's, it's really sad. We managed to persecute it to extinction in the UK and many, uh, many areas uh, across uh, many countries, even across Europe, extinction or near extinction. Um, but in recent decades, with lots of effort from lots of different people, from all different works of life, not just conservationists, um, we've managed to, to bring it back. So it is making a comeback. So it's a symbol that if we try, we can, we can bring things back. And on top of that, it's a bird that's very visible. Um, it's already has a big following uh, in the in the UK, and so people all along the flyway have a reasonable chance of identifying it. And on top of that, um, it has a. It's interesting being at the top of a food chain. It's a really good symbol for the health of wetlands um, all along the route. They're the same wetlands that many other the birds are, are using as well. And how how did would you say how did it go? How did the whole you know, project? Oof. Well, Develop. I mean, there's, 
Um, I don't know how many expeditions you've been on before, but there's various different <laughs> levels to it. So there's one is like, did it go to plan as expected? Uh, and there is uh, how well did a team of eight or nine people living in close proximity to each other, in fact, in the same space constantly, 24 hours a day for all that time go. And then there is, you know, the big, uh, the big aims of the expedition, which were to come across or identify as many threats as we could for the ospreys that might also impact other birds, um, to meet people along the flyway who had really powerful stories but also really um, interesting ideas and solutions that, that could scale, um, and to help us, uh, yeah, collect a, a network of people who could be influencers in the future. So um, on the third one, I think uh, we did we did really well. Uh, it was a fascinating trip, but I wasn't able to fly for this expedition uh, at all. So any aerial views we had were um, yeah done with drones instead. But I mean that that works reasonably well. It's a it's very different when you're flying. I I was able to do you know really long distances, cover cover long distances, and really get um, a feel for the state of the landscape. You know, is it as people expect? Um, and with a drone, you can only do short um, sections in places that you predict are, are useful to do um, some aerial imagery. Uh, but still, it, it did the majority of it. So, yeah, I'd say overall it went really well. Um, the, the team we ended up with in the end and the response of people all along the flyway was absolutely incredible. And particularly because I was in a state of still having one leg in a, in a cast and a big boot and the other leg in a metal frame. Um, I, I wondered whether people, um, would dismiss somebody who was quite clearly very disabled and physically challenged trying to get out and do things and see things. Uh, but in fact, I think the reaction I got, especially once we got into Africa was, um, was the opposite to what I expected. Yeah, well, that's, that's really encouraging, isn't it? That people responded in that way. And that's I mean, good for you as well, isn't it? You know, to, to get that sort of a, that, that sort yeah. of response. You know, it's great. Yeah. yeah. When we talked to you last, Sasha, um, you know, I remember we talked to you uh, about your fabulous um, flight with the swans and then, you know, you got the bug and you were thinking about doing the, the Osprey. And of course, then COVID got in the way and it was all postponed for a while, wasn't it? And when we last talked to you, you were, you were airborne, but you were working your way around the UK in the, in the lead up to COP26, which I think for many of us was kind of a bit of a high point in climate conversations. Mm. Um, does certainly feel as if the world's gone downhill a bit since then, mm -hmm. I must say, but that's probably mm -hmm. another conversation mm -hmm. about, about cops and the value of cops. And then, of course, that flight was brought to a pretty abrupt end um, because you had a pretty horrific accident and you've been out of the air and, you know, off, off air in lots of ways for some mm -hmm. time now, haven't you? How, how, how have you recovered? I mean, are you, you just mentioned you were in a boot. Are you still in a boot? Are you, have you got no, the, uh, uh, no. So full mobility, mobility, I will, I will never have, or depending on what you call it, I will never be running. I'll never be running with a fifty kilo electric paramotor on my on my back again. Um, so yeah, I I uh, damaged both my lower legs pretty extremely. So they were they were going to amputate them. It's only that people around me said, like, can you try and save them? So that's what they've done. Um, but given that's the, the basis, so I also broke all my ribs and my hip as well. Uh, internally, I seem to be okay. I seem to escape, uh, injury and my head was okay, which was a bit of a miracle considering I fell 150 feet onto a, onto a, onto a bog. So I guess landing on slightly soft wetland, um, were, yeah, is the reason I'm still here. Um, 
so yeah, they've the frame has come off uh, my left leg and the boot and things off the right leg. I still have a big skin and fat graft on my inner ankle, which we call my ankle boob. Um, affectionately, it's my way of. Uh, at first, I couldn't look at them at all because they're quite messy looking. Um, but I've kind of I've come to terms with it. And to be honest, in the last month, I have been. I've suddenly gone from being able to walk around or move around very awkwardly with very heavy legs to um, now that I'm free of boot and metal, I'm having more and more mobility. So actually, yesterday was the first day a friend said, I've got an electric bike and I think because I've got well, the ankle boobies on the inside of my, um, of my ankle, so it actually on an ordinary bike it would hit the, the, hit the cogs but her Mm -hmm. bike, everything is covered over. Um, So I tried it and uh, managed to do the 100 metres up and down her street. And today for the first time, I have just cycled a few miles um, to a farm shop and back again. Um, So that is pretty amazing. And the day before that, some friends came and helped me to get out uh, onto a canoe um, so I could go paddling around a Scottish lock. And I guess I'm suddenly starting to feel like, uh, like me again. So there's whilst walking is still a bit stiff um, and one of my ankles doesn't move very much and there's pain uh, that may or may not go away. Um, But I already feel like it's not going to stop me from doing stuff I want to do. Uh, And in fact, that's the the physical side of it. But the the biggest thing of all with an accident like that is the, the mental side of it. So I had six months in a white room in hospital um which is which is pretty extreme i lost a friend in that accident which is the worst um but yeah i've also had uh an amazing psychologist who really helped me in the over a period of about 6 months um in small stages helped get me out of what i described in adventure terms i used to do a lot of caving cave diving when i first met her i described it as being i didn't want to be here anymore to be honest um, I described it as being as like being stuck at the bottom of um, uh, a cave system and drowning in a sump, a, a pool in the bottom of a dark cave, and no way of getting out. And that when she arrived, she like threw me a lifeline, so it's something I could hold on to. And from then on, every small phase you went through was like her sort of helping me to build my own ladder to get back up out of it. And um, I remember very clearly the the day when I actually felt like you know, I could maybe see light again. And um, yeah, I, um, I now feel like whilst I'll never be exactly the same person, um, I'm back to the same level of optimism and I have joy again, which I thought I might not. Um, it's amazing how all these things come on the back of a, of a big accident. Um, but yeah, more importantly, I think I said to everybody that I'd leave, I wanted to do this expedition, this Ulster expedition that we had funded and been preparing for a couple of years. I wanted to do that and see whether my heart was still in conservation uh, because along with big accidents, there's all sorts of self-doubt and things, which I, to be honest, I've never been, I've never had a lot of self-doubt. Um, <laughs> You've always struck me as being the person who just, you know, if anybody says I can, it's it's Sasha. Sasha is the can-do woman. Yeah. So, so yeah, I can imagine it must have been. Well, I can't even begin to imagine it actually. But I think your analogy of the cave is is so yeah, strong yeah. and powerful. And and you know, I for one who don't like small dark spaces underground would be, have been utterly terrified. So, so I can empathise with that. Mm. I think did, did, so. Going on the expedition when you couldn't fly. Um, 
that must have been incredibly difficult because you know the thing everybody knows about you is that you, you know you leap into the air with that paramotor. So, so did it? Did you have to readjust how you felt about following those ospreys when you had to do it from the ground? I mean, you know, mentally, was that a big adjustment for you? It was, but I had to do that before going on it because for me it was also I I had a team and recruited a team. If I wasn't flying and I was quite disabled, was I really bringing enough to make it worth the team having me in the ground crew and not just back at HQ and, uh, and working on other things? Um, and what I actually realized that on all previous expeditions, I'd always been a little bit gutted because I regularly had to make the decision of, you know, I, it's perfect conditions. I can fly now and I need to see, you know, I really want to see this landscape. However, there's more people that I could have stopped and spoken to. And I'm missing out on meeting a load of people on the ground when I'm up in the air. And I, yeah, so on this one, I I decided just to focus on the fact that what it would give me is more time for, for meeting people and understanding how they live, how they have to operate, and particularly conservationists along the flyway, the difficult conditions that they're trying to work in. So it was, it was definitely different, um, but I'm not a bad different. Another stage, I guess, yeah. in your journey. Uh, and Sasha, I'm sure there must be a lot of people who will be listening to this will, you know, they'll you know, be facing all sorts of challenges in their lives. But I think what you're saying is really inspirational because it just, you know, you were you had some pretty serious stuff happening uh, and yet you've managed to get through that. And with, with help of mothers, it's fantastic mm-hmm. that you, as you say, you're sort of climbing up, climbing up the other side and, and to, yeah. to scale, scale new heights again. So yeah, and I, I think the the thing that's just shown me is that even so even in this like suggesting this expedition, I knew that was going to be really difficult. But the thing that helped me to get over all the different hurdles in the planning was that I was really passionate about what I'm doing. I really believed that it was going to work, and I it's for me is the most important thing in my life. I don't I think we've mentioned before the fact that. Um, we also lost our family home in Australia in the bushfires. So I just think that level of conviction is has been, yeah, strong enough to get me through even something like this. I still feel like I've got I've got something big that I want to live for yeah. um, and a cause that I really want to live for. And yeah, if anything, that's been a positive. Yeah, yeah. That's can can I ask you a little bit about the Ospreys themselves? Um the journey was, I mean, apart from the fact that you were kind of seduced on the dance floor to follow the ospreys, <laughs> the, the, as, as, you know, as birds themselves, they do face multiple threats, don't they? And they face multiple threats on that flyway that you've, you've described. And, and are those threats all climate related or are some of them related to, you know, the interaction of human beings? Because I do remember when you talked to us about the swans, about how so many of the swans died because people were shooting them. So is it some of the, I mean, what are the sort of threats the ospreys are facing? Oh, well, I think when we tallied up all of them that we came across or that people contacted us with, they were about 38. And I haven't got it in front of me, but I, 38 separate 38 threats. different threats. I mean, some of them are, there is some wow. connection, but well, as hunting, hunting for sport, hunting for um taxidermy for me they they counted as I guess two different two slightly different um Mm. things but I went through and I calculated which of them were actually exacerbated by climate change so climate change in itself is kind of too big a thing to put down but about two-thirds of them I think were all exacerbated by climate change so for example there was mass fish deaths due to 
um, low, not just low, low water levels, it was low water levels at a place where there was vast amounts of mine waste being dumped into the river. Oh. And the, that, that um, high concentration of uh, mine waste, so the low water levels was due to uh, droughts and things across Europe. The mine waste concentration killed the fish, and then that initial fish death caused the dying fish rotting, caused um, lots, it took all the oxygen out of the water, and then killed basically caused another much larger fish death on the back of that. And then there was very simple things like the vast numbers of wildfires uh, burning through France mm. and Spain, um, which were not only near to some of the nesting areas, but um, various people reported the fact that it actually makes a a physical barrier to migration, so things stop moving. Um, and nearly all the threats are not just uh, threats to the ospreys, they're threats to other birds doing the of same course. migration as well. Mm. Um, yeah, huge. So, what, what, what are you going to do with Conservation Without Borders now? Because because a lot of what you say on the website is about getting people engaged in projects. Yeah. And so presumably some of them have got to be slightly smaller scale than, 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 than following the ospreys. Have you got a programme of work where... Other communities connect can connect and get engaged with what you're doing. I think the the key thing for me once we've done a project like this is that we've done as I guess what I see as whilst we've followed the ospreys, we've identified various threats. We've also managed to map a lot of the key players and the major problems in each of the in each of the countries. So the key players in terms of communities, some in terms of government, but also those in industry. So the next thing for me is to sit down and go through a program of more formally along the flyway, looking at um, either in some cases it's looking at a country, in other cases it's looking at ish, an issue, um, and try and bring in a few more players uh, in terms of mapping the problems and how they and how they they work. So in some cases. Kind of, there's a, an issue which conservationists are aware of, the local community are aware of, um, but potentially the companies they're talking about being behind the problem aren't engaged at all and haven't been contacted even about the issue. So our mission is to create the, the space where those industries can be invited uh, in and they can be invited in uh, as potential heroes of the situation because they have the most power to turn things uh, around for the better or it might go a different way. But that's basically the the program of work we need to do now is to break it down into the priority issues and work with our your network of partners along the flyway. So it's at a scale where I think we can make some meaningful difference. And mapping a system, um, which is basically what, we, what we're doing, is uh, a bit of a complex process, but uh, it's kind of, it's what was done before the Flight of the Swans project. So Whilst I never talk about it that way because it sounds really complex, before the project and the, the idea came from sitting down with a load of experts and hearing from them all the different challenges, the fact that the big number was the swans were declining, but all the complex uh, players and actors behind making a picture of that and then piecing together, looking at a system and realising which parts of the system, was it public awareness, was it government willingness, was it lack of the right sort of legal legal framework in the background, what bits of the system needed to be moved in order to end up with an increase in swan numbers. And it was looking at all of that and realising that actually flying with the birds would help us to do that. 
And Sasha, will that same approach uh, be applicable to other migratory bird species? I mean, because presumably, or rather, you've focused on the osprey and the and the thirty eight sort of different threats which which affect that fantastic bird. But you know, there are you know, was it four thousand odd other birds bird species that migrate as well. So how's that? Yeah. How's it going to? How's it? How's your work going to benefit them? So. Uh, well, the sharing of sharing of knowledge. Also, if there are any of the processes, if they work, uh, uh, then we'll be sharing those with partners uh, in different flyways. I have got uh, two future projects in the pipeline. One, which is at a smaller scale. Um, I say a smaller scale. It's not an A to B journey, but it'll be something looking at a group of species in potentially in most danger at the moment, which are the vultures. We can go back and find videos of people 10 years ago saying we're trying really hard, but things aren't changing fast enough. And I think there's something that we can bring to that. The BBC have created a series out of the flight of the Osprey and it's been very popular. So they've asked to chat about uh, doing others and the vultures would make fantastic audio. Um, no doubt. Oh, I love vultures. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, and I think I think we can uh, we can make a load more people love vultures as well. Um, yeah, they're extraordinary creatures, vultures, aren't they? But is a baby is a baby vulture quite as as cute as a as a um, as an osplet? I think is that what a baby osprey is an osplet? Apparently, yeah. <laughs> uh, is it as cute? Uh, well, on radio, it doesn't really matter. We can, <laughs> no, we, we can describe it as cute. <laughs> yeah. They're extraordinary vultures. I remember hearing about them. And is it true that they've got these extraordinary acids in their stomach so they can break yeah. things down, which is what allows them to break down bones? But but also they can break down elements of waste as mm. well, can't they? So they yeah. kind of, you know, they're kind of cleaning up, you know, not just yeah, bone no, waste, uh, but, but some and kind of toxic waste. There's, there's one, uh, one population who are uh, responsible for clearing up most of the human waste for, uh, for a city in Africa. And that's because they, yeah, again, because of their their stomachs, they're able to get protein out of uh, waste from other species that wouldn't be able to get any more nutritional value out of it, uh, which is a pretty grim fact, but it's pretty magical when you think about it. It's the kind of free living sewage treatment system. And um, they're extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, they're kind of they're kind of ecosystem engineers in their own way. Really interesting. You talked about systems because when we. You know the work that I do when I talk to to a lot to corporates and mm-hmm. and and policymakers and things. They're always talking about system change. People always talk about system change in relation to climate. Yeah. But you know, kind of your projects a living embodiment that that actually a we need to do that. But b it is possible when you get the right actors around the table. And I think the the right. So quite often, what might be missing is that people are kind of have knowledge of what needs to change. But if you haven't got the really powerful like heart-wrenching stories behind it, which give people an added motivation to act, you are missing something, without the strong visuals as well. Um, again, people, you somehow lack the motivation to, to act. And, um, yeah, I think when we're, when we're trying to work at a scale where we're also bringing in the individual actors on the ground who are being directly impacted, it might be the community who themselves are drowning under plastic um it just uh it makes a difference so that's what we're just trying to trying to make sure that we connect those people directly affected along with the visuals and the stories of the birds um with the right industries but also yeah bring bring them together in lay the groundwork for the whole relationship to be as kind of collaborative as possible 
And um, mm. yeah, but also we're kind of we're open to the fact that it is not easy. Uh, it, no, it's, it's not, not easy. easy. <laughs> it is. It's messy. And the really, if it's the simple, the situation, if it sounds really simple, it's probably too simple. Um, but uh, but yeah, we've um, we've we've seen that it that it works. And when I was given um, I was given an award called the Green Swan Award for the title was for making the seemingly impossible virtually inevitable. And in receiving that, they kind of they said that I whilst I wasn't talking about systems at all, that I seem to naturally talk in systems, which well, sorry, think think systems. Um, it also means that when I'm having conversations, they often go off in all kinds of tangents because I'm that's how my brain is working. It can be confusing in some senses, but um, but I think my brain is at least comfortable with that kind of trying to piece together that level of complexity, and I'm I'm not scared of. Um, yeah, at least um, having a go. Yeah, it's that mapping, isn't it? It's that interconnectivity. Mm-hmm. It's that patchwork that you that you create, both by what you do and what you say, but also you know, kind of your vision. And that must have come from looking down from a yeah. as a bird onto a patchwork of the earth below. So you're kind of an embodiment, really, of of all the things that you've been talking about. We're also about. pitching our kind of future work under the this a concept of the 2030 Global Challenge, so that it is not like mm-hmm. we're not promising you change tomorrow. Um, but it might be a bit, feel a bit slower at the outset, but in the long term, um, yeah, will hopefully lead to, um, sustainable, a real sustainable difference. Well, I have to say, Sasha, if anyone can do it, you can, (laughs) um, you know, obviously you can't do it on your own. So is there something you need? I mean, whether they're planet pod listeners or policymakers or, uh, you know, businesses, we have a, a wide audience on planet pod. What do you need? Anything we can do to help? What do you need most and how can people help you? Oh, the key thing at the moment would be to sign up to our sign up to our newsletter. And from there, over the coming month, I'll be sharing information about how individuals can get involved, um, how industries can get involved. And we will also be looking for people within as large companies and industries who are prepared to provide their expertise and thinking to help us map the systems because they are some of the players that are often really missing and um, we need to hear the we need the devil's advocates um, telling conservationist stuff that they might not want to hear um, or some kind of raw truths of um, the practicalities of trying to work because if we don't understand the full the full system uh, then it's not going to work so yeah, the key thing would be sign up to our, our e-newsletter and we'll be sharing everything there. We'll certainly do that. And we'll obviously tweet that on the Planet Pod Twitter and put it on the website and, um, you know, do everything we can to support you in your, in your next exciting endeavour. Thank you so much for, for, for being with us and bringing us up to date. And uh, as always, it's a little bit kind of, I don't know about you, Jim, but I was a little bit overawed when I met uh, Sasha. Well, <laughs> overawed but excited inspired as well and it's great Sasha it's great to see you looking looking so well and I know there's still recovery to be done but it's it's fantastic and it's lovely to catch up with you as well yeah yeah no thanks for having me back Planet Pod is sponsored by Akil Management Sustainability Consultancy providing resources and support for all businesses to help them tackle their climate change challenges and work towards net zero for more, visit akilmanagement.com. Well, that was amazing, wasn't it, Jim? She's so inspirational, Sasha, isn't she? She really gives you hope that, that the impossible is possible. 
Yes, it, it was great, wasn't it? And as you say, it's um, it just it's uplifting in in all sorts of ways, uh, uplifting into the air, but also just up, uplifting of spirit, isn't it? Really? Mm, yeah, and I think probably very pertinent because, as well as being our resident bird expert, you actually want to talk today in animal, vegetable, and mineral about birds. I think, don't you? Well, yeah. I mean, I know we talked about birds in our last uh, animal, vegetable, and mineral, but I thought you know keep the theme going. Um, I think you know since we've been so inspired by Sasha and her flight to the Osprey. Um, you know, and of course they're one of the you know they're really iconic, aren't they? Uh, one of the iconic migratory visitors to the UK. But you know, I just thought it might be interesting to, if we go on our own little flight of discovery uh, and find out a few more things about bird migration. So. Okay, I'm buckled up, ready to go. Okay, okay. Well, I mean, to start off, you know, it might seem really odd to us now that, you know, with the benefit of our scientific knowledge and, and other sort of observations, but that uh, it was only really the late 18th century, early 19th century that we, we really started to understand what migration was all about and what actually happened to these birds when they suddenly disappeared from our skies in, in the wintertime uh, and then came back again in, in spring, you know. And did you know that the ancient Greeks actually uh, thought that maybe some birds turned into fish in the winter uh, and that geese turned into barnacles, uh, which is one of the reasons why we that's one why we have a species called the barnacle goose, because it comes from that sort of belief that they were actually, you know, they overwintered as barnacles. But So, Amanda, back in the 18th century in the UK, uh, well, or not just the UK, in Europe, where did you think where do you think some people thought swifts and swallows uh, went in the winter? Swifts and swallows. Uh, well, um, they must have they must have known that they went somewhere. So I don't know, uh, frogs. Frogs. <laughs> <laughs> they, they all packed up their suitcases and went to France. Yeah. Well, if you read the, the great naturalist Gilbert White, who wrote in the eighteenth century, uh, um, he he sort of highlighted that a number of people thought that swallows and swift actually lived in the mud. At the bottom of ponds during the winter, <laughs> um, uh, and when it, and it's it's not quite so surprising when you think that you know they disappeared, uh, you know suddenly they all disappeared, and then, and then they reappeared in spring. Many of them feeding on insects, which are sort of buzzing around ponds and and you know watercourses. And so it's kind of logical to assume that well, where did they go? Well, they must have gone to the bottom of the pond and been living in the mud. But anyway, so now of course we we know that you know birds migrate; they go from the colder climates to the warmer warmer parts every year. And, and I think we mentioned how many species actually migrate. Can you remember how many species? Yes, I was paying attention. Migrate? You said four thousand, I think. I did say four thousand, four thousand, which is about forty percent of the total number of birds in the world, which is which is fantastic, isn't it? Really, but um, you know, do you want to Mi- name a few? Migrate anywhere? I mean, we're talking about you know out of. We're talking about across a great distance. So define. Yeah, yeah, how yeah. To go to be a migrant. Well, somewhere warm, somewhere cold, to somewhere warm. I guess you know. I, mean, I don't know whether there's actually a specified distance, but it has to be a reasonable. I mean, it's got to be climatically. It's got to be a reasonable okay. separation, hasn't it? But okay. and do you want to have a go at naming any of our our UK migrants? Okay. Uh, well, obviously, swifts and swallows you've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, starlings, I think, migrate, don't they? Yeah, and, yeah, do, yeah. Uh, yeah. Geese. Now I know that because we're about to go and have a chat to the uh, expert on the pink-footed goose because they're migratory species aren't they yeah um uh that's it i've run out now <laughs> yeah well well you're doing, Three out pretty, of 4, pretty good. there's there's there are there, obviously there, there there are a few more but I, I mean i won't list them all but you know things like wheat ear warblers you know things like chiff chaff etc uh which comes like, oh, i didn't know that. well they 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 they're summer visitors nightingale mm-hmm. uh turtle doves and sadly you know as we know that um, you know, both nightingales and, and, and turtle doves are, are 
somewhat endangered. Uh, and they were common once, no longer, but increasingly with places like Wildcan Hill uh, and NEP, obviously we're seeing increasing numbers, which is great. So, uh, And you know, they can cover fantastic distances. Um, so we, we talked about the, the wheat here, which is a tiny little bird. It weighs less than an ounce. Hmm. Um, about 20, 28 grams or so, which is less than a, or about, the, or about the weight of a crisp packet. So, but they can cover something like 9,000 miles, which is sort of 14,500 uh, kilometers each way between their, their journey between the Arctic and, and, and Africa, which is fantastic, isn't it? Amazing, amazing. Um, so, what else? Um, well, I suppose the real question we need to know is, you know, why and how do they do it? Mm-hmm. You know, how, do, you know, how do they know where to go when they migrate? How do they find their way back to where they came from? Uh, and and how do, you know, in, in the words of the great late Sandy Denny, how do they know when it's time for them to go? If, uh, <laughs> if, if you if you if you know the you know, who knows where the time goes? Fantastic song, but I won't sing it. Um, it could be that they can sense the Earth's magnetic field, and I think that's that's to, to, for them to navigate. And I think that's thought less likely, but I think magnetism does come into it. Sense of smell certainly plays an important part, knowing where they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, their learned behaviour by following the guidance of older birds may also be a factor. And, and it's thought that some have got a sort of genetic imprint of a map and a sort of compass almost in their in their brains. So, um, And also in terms of when, they, when, when it's time to go, they've got a sort of an internal clock which tells them when it's time to start their migration. And that, that may be governed by sort of, you know, length of day mm. as the, the mm. daylight changes and so on or the, or the, or the weather changes. But, so and as the time gets closer to, to when they need to go, they start to put on weight. Bit like me, uh, they store up fat reserves, give them the energy to the journey. So they and they also undergo sort of body changes, so that they they can they can absorb oxygen and use the fat more efficiently when they, when they fly. Uh, and some even grow new flight feathers, which is nice, isn't it? So they've got a, they're spruced up, ready to give them in. They're in tip top condition when they when they make their journey. So, but uh, I mean, it's 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 totally amazing. You know, it's, I think bird migration is yet another one of these aspects of nature, which is just. Uh, you know, it defies belief quite often. You think of the distances that some of these tiny, tiny creatures. I mean, an osprey is a, is a bird the size of a goose, but but a wheat ear is is mm. actually minuscule, really. But um, it's fantastic, you know. And of course, you know, as soon as, as soon as the storms of winter have been and gone, and spring returns, it's fantastic to know that we can look forward to welcoming some of these these birds back. So let's hope they continues. Um, you know. Yeah, we have um we have swifts where I am up here in Suffolk, and um, they always come. They come back to the same places. So, you know, there's certain bits and you can walk along the you can walk along the shore and they'll all be on one bit of the beach or one bit of the shoreline and they're not 200 yards further down. So it's extraordinary how yeah. they come back to a very localised place. And uh, people have been working hard to try and attract them in. So putting yeah. up swift boxes and then having to play a kind of swift call out of their windows on a yeah. kind of loop on a tape to try and encourage the swifts back. So I have to say, it's, yeah. you know, it's great when they come back. It's just it wonderful to, to see them and you really feel that summer's begun. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, reflecting on what Sasha was saying, there are, 30, there are 38 separate threats to an osprey's migration, which and the similar sort of number of threats must apply to a lot of other migrating bird species. You know, and you think, well, it's a, it's actually a marvel that they do return. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it's it's absolutely fantastic that there's an opportunity for us to to be part of that system that Sasha talks about to to do something about you know protecting those flyways and and protecting the migration routes for, for birds. So, yeah. so the magnificent magnificent marvel that is bird migration. There you are, Amanda. Amazing. As always, informative and enjoyable. Thank you, Jim, for rounding off thank this you. episode of Planet Pod. And thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, come back next time. And until then, goodbye. You've been listening to Planet Pod. We'd love to hear from you. So please do get in touch and don't forget to follow us on social media.